Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, the broadcaster, Anne-Marie Batson, and Seb Stafford-Bloor of Tifo Football. It's very early, but this still has the feel of the business end of the season. The next six matches are shaping up to be critical for the Premier League's top three. The sequence reaches a significant climax on January the 2nd, when Liverpool play at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea, top in November, are struggling in December. They've dropped seven points in the last five games, with only one clean sheet, and they failed to win their Champions League group. They've got a throwback fixture against Leeds on Saturday, but Seb, of the contenders, do they have the biggest questions to answer? Yeah, I'd say so, Mike, Um, certainly given the form that Liverpool have shown over the past few weeks. I think the biggest problem or the biggest question mark I have over Chelsea at the moment is is how they, well, two actually, firstly, how they cope without Ben Chilwell, because I don't think they're the same team without him. I don't think, um, I know Marcus Alonso has been in the Premier League for some time and has done very well in it, but I I assume it's a a bit of an anomaly. I think he's he's quite a sort of seven out of 10 player and I don't think he's really close to where Chilwell is. Uh, also, uh, as we saw in Russia, uh, Romelu Lukaku is gradually coming back into the side. And this is always going to happen. Lukaku is a wonderful option to have, but I, I'm not sure how how Thomas Tuchel balances his resources. And um, I didn't expect to be saying this, but um, they miss Kovacic badly. I never, At the beginning of his Chelsea career, I never thought that would be the case. But in terms of how well and how quickly he moves the ball, I think he's been a big miss. I certainly seeing um, the difference in when Ruben Loftus-Cheek came to the side, I think the, the kind of the ball circulation has been a little bit more ponderous, uh, been a little bit more lateral, and Chelsea have kind of dropped down a gear as a result. But it's um, there are a few questions there, primarily because their team seems a lot less set than the other contenders, and I think that's the issue. Yeah, I think there's a common acceptance that uh, Thomas Tuchel has yet to find the right blend and balance. Um Seb referred to Lukaku there, Anne-Marie. Um, how do you get the best out of him? And can Chelsea afford the time perhaps they need to gel him with, with Mount and, and, and Werner? He needs service, 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 service. You have no doubt the minute Lukaku gets the right ball, gets the right service, you can guarantee he's going to score. But over the last few weeks or so, he seems a little bit isolated because he's not been getting the service. And I think when they don't necessarily have Mason Matten in the midfield, I think there's a bit of a gap 
there. Um, and I think in terms of time, no, they don't have a lot of time. If they want to secure that top place at the, at the Premier League, knowing that Liverpool and Manchester City are in the hunt as well, they're going to have to, well, Tuchel's going to have to sort it out pretty quickly, I would say, if it's a case of adapting his technical pl- tactical plans or utilising Lukaku's strength in some way. Because, look, they spent £98 million on this very big gentleman who can deliver. And of course, we saw that in the, you know, in Italian football, that Antonio Conte definitely bought the best out of Lukaku. And that's what put him in the shop window back for the Premier League and to come back into Chelsea. It's just a case of deploying the right tactics so we can get the best out of him because he has it in him. There is no doubt about that. But there's not a lot of time. But this is what Tuchel does best. He, I think he's one of the best tacticians in the planet. And I do think he'll get the balance right. Yeah, let's look at central midfield. You know, you you, you alluded to it earlier, Seb. Um, I must admit, I've been surprised by Saul. Um, you know, his lack of impact is negligible. Um, that that's a, a key area of the team, isn't it? It is, and I always feel a little bit sorry for central midfielders who are dropped in to the Premier League because. As we've heard time and time again, like the difference in pace between a Premier League midfield and uh, the Liga midfield is pretty dramatic. There's a very interesting comment attributed to Yaya Toure um, a couple of months ago in an article um, on The Athletic where he talked about sort of how quickly a player, um, when we've received the ball, how quickly somebody would challenge him for it, come through the back of him or try and, you know, try and take it off him. And to me, Sal is a wonderfully gifted technician. He's someone that can do wonderful things with the ball. Um, and yet he hasn't quite worked out, um, he quite hasn't kind of upgraded his processing speed. Let's put it that way. And I feel like, I mean, we, we talked about Kovacic at the beginning and this is a kind of, there's, there's a model here. And when you come into the, the Premier League and when you adapt to a midfield environment, you need to be given a little bit of grace just because it's it's difficult and it's, it's difficult to, to survive. It's difficult. It's even more difficult to actually prosper and to express yourself. And I feel like, I don't know, I mean, it's a funny one, the sole deal, because it's a loan, um, obviously with the idea of a, a permanent deal at the end of it. But you feel like he's going to need this loan period just to adjust into it. And I just don't. I don't know. Like it's um it's a it's a it's a pretty difficult challenge for someone like that. Um so I'm not sure how Chelsea navigate their way around this. Um Mount helps because Mount makes everything a little bit more progressive. He helps kind of make to, to make incisions from the midfield line further forward. Uh but it's just going to be it's going to be something Chelsea have to cope with, I think. Um but I I, I don't um I don't see Saul as another Abakioku. Um, if that makes sense, because um, it's a different type of midfielder um, and a different skill set, and very much worth persevering with. So let's let's hope he gets through it. But yeah, it is tricky, very very tricky. Mm, you know, look, looking at defence, Emery, um, the indications are that Antonio Rudiger won't sign a new contract. He's able to talk to other people in uh, January, and there seems to be. Um, fairly substantial interest from Real Madrid. Um, that'll be a big blow on it because he's been their best defender this season, hasn't he? I think it'd be huge. And I get that sense from the fans as well if he goes. I think it'd be a huge loss. Look, he's 28 years old and it's always around about that that age, isn't it? 28, 29, 30. The, the la- you're in your prime 
shall we say. Not that I've been 28 for a long time, but as a footballer, 28, 29, you're in your prime, right? So you're looking for that last big contract. So I don't necessarily blame Antonio Rudiger for looking at options because that's his right at the end of the day and decide what's best for his career. Of course, he'd be a massive loss because he's so tall. He's like one of the tallest defenders in the Premier League and you need height to be a defender, I believe. Um, and he's yeah, too, you need, sometimes like, when he's you really good <laughs> yeah, sometimes when you see him on the pitch when he's standing next to somebody who's small him, it's amazing. But he's a, all jokes aside, he's an incredible defender who's brilliant at ta- tackling and passing, and he makes runs into the box as well. He's a very versatile defender, and he's a Champions League winner too. So when you've got all that, and he's in his prime, I would just offer him the money that he wants because I think he would be a massive loss to Chelsea personally and I think the fans would say so too. Mm. One of the great successes of the season, Seb, is Rhys James. Um, is there a hint of over-reliance on him at wing-back, notwithstanding that midfield experiment in Russia in midweek? Yeah, well, I, I think the temptation with someone like that, and listen, like Rhys James is one of the best crosses of a ball I've ever seen. Um I put him on a par with someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold at the moment. Um, the temptation is when you when you have mechanical issues in a midfield, right? You can kind of depend on that delivery, and you can, as a team, I suppose, you can sort of fall into a rhythm of just shuffling it out wide and hoping for the best and hoping he finds finds the ball. I don't know if over reliance is is quite the right word though, Mike, because I, I think that um, I think that the modern game tells us that fullbacks are if not the most, then it's certainly among the most important positions on the pitch. And if you can see by the average number of touches that, you know, influential fullbacks have in every league, really, I think every top, every elite side probably has a reliance on their fullback. It's probably not a coincidence. They all have very, very good fullbacks too. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's really more just a question of balance. And I, I think this, not to repeat myself, but this brings us back to the Chilwell issue. If you don't mimic what you have on the right, on the left, it's a problem. I think we've seen this with Liverpool. Whenever one of Robertson or Alexander-Arnold has been missing in the past, it's not always been a disaster, but it's been less than impressive. It's been, um, it feels like the absence of one affects the other. Um, and so with Chilwell gone, it seems as if a lot of defensive uh, attention gets focused on, on Rhys James, more so than usual. It feels like Chelsea... Uh, want to play the ball in that area a little bit more it feels like they trust him a li- they trust their right side more than their left and I think these are slight problems which you know good um, tacticians can take advantage of in opposition yeah now uh, this is a little bit of a departure Anne-Marie but I know you follow the Chelsea women's team really closely um, what did you make of the way that Sam Kerr dispatched that uh, uh, crowd invader uh, sorry, pitch invader uh, early in the week. I have to say, I fell in love with her. I thought it was fantastic. What about you? <laughs> well, if she ever wants a career in rugby after football, goodness, I think she'd be great. Um, it was frustration. I think I think the reaction from her just summed it up in terms of how long it took for the stewards and security to deal with the situation. We have no idea. This gentleman, or and I'm being polite, of course, runs on the situation. We have no idea if he's carrying something or he wanted to do something untoward. So I think that was, for me, it's, I, you know, I don't agree with violence, but in this particular occasion, I think it was an instinctive reaction to stop the situation running out of control, which it could have done. And of course, that video is now, it's gone wildfire on social media and so on and so forth. Again, it just highlights 
the investment that's needed within the game about having more stewards, more security at games, particularly for Chelsea, who regularly sell out, you know, 3,000, 4,000 per match. They had a big turn up for Juventus this week. So, yes, on the side of it, you know, we can all laugh at it. But in all seriousness, I think it just highlights there is an issue there that needs to be addressed. And, and as for Sam Kerr, you know, I applaud her for what she did. Um, I hope that yellow card's rescinded as well. Um, we'll wait to hear on that. But uh, I think it was an instinctive reaction from a player who wanted to protect herself, but also her teammates yeah, as well. Fair play to her, I'd say. Um, just popping back to the men's team, Seb, um, you know, Leeds um, at the bridge um, at the weekend, you know, that I always look back and think of, you know, pitches which are ploughed fields and, um, you know, tackles which basically, you know, resemble GBH on a, on a fairly regular basis. Cars parked around the perimeter. All that, that stuff, that yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Leeds, though, are, um, they're in a bit of a pickle in many ways, aren't they? Because the statistics uh, suggest that they're probably the Premier League's biggest underachievers this season. Um, is it just a case of injury or is there something else going on? No, I don't think it's just a case of injury. Injury Injuries have been important. I mean, obviously, the, 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 the most difficult one to overcome has been Patrick Bamford. Um, he's coming back gradually now. Scored a goal off his shin at the week, uh, last week. Um, I just feel like there's a, there's a lack of continuity. So a lack of rhythm in this team. So but in, in many ways, Leeds are among the most um, enjoyable teams to watch in the Premier League because you don't know what they're going to be. Like, a Leeds match could be anything. Um, but I, I think the difference for me between last season has been a lack of some of the power, um, some of the physical power. And I don't just mean like, you know, um, I'm not trying to depict Leeds as sort of a, an army of six or five players. I just mean like they would physically outrun teams. And if you look at some of the, the running statistics from this season, they are well down, um, which is um, discouraging for a, for a Marseille Bielsa team. Um, I think there are other things starting to creep into their game. Um, there's a little bit of a over-reliance on Rafinha. I think he's a wonderful player. Like I'd, I could watch him play all day, but um, it feels like it's a little bit of a lazy option sometimes. Um, uh, on the flip side, um, Adam Forshaw coming back has been a great thing. I think Forshaw has had a, a really good return. He's had a um, very serious injury. Been out for a very, very long time and it's missed a lot of football over the last couple of years. I don't know. I, I, I just... Um, it felt a little bit over the summer as if they invested in the wrong areas, I think. Um, because I, and we've, we've encountered this problem with other teams, Mike. You survive a first team, a first season. You don't just survive. You you thrive in the in the division, um, and then it's very very difficult to build on your foundations. And I think Leeds probably needed a bit more investment at centre half. Um, I think they needed a little bit more in central midfield, and there needed to be a bit more of a contingency, a kind of a more of a um, traditional contingency at centre forward. I don't mean they needed a you know giant target man, but they needed something that um, protected them from what has ultimately happened, uh, Patrick Bamford injury. Um, so I don't know. I, I think also with Bielsa, because um, he's an eccentric and because of the pattern of his career, I think there's always this slight worry of what happens when something runs out of steam. Because we've seen this before. Uh, we've seen a, you know, situations where... Um, Projects have ended rather abruptly. Results have fallen off a cliff, and I don't know. So um, we'll see. I, I, big question mark. I'm not quite sure what leads are, and I don't feel particularly confident in predicting where they're going between now and the rest of the season. Mike, can I add something to that? Just to, to add what 
Seb said there, I mean, their next five games, Chelsea, City, Arsenal, Liverpool, Aston Villa, I wouldn't wish that on any, any team yeah, yeah, <laughs> right now. Exactly uh, particularly as as uh, Seb has pointed out, they're, you know, they're in, a, in injuries and illness as well because of COVID. I mean, they could try and get something out of Arsenal and Villa. Maybe it's a chance for the, you know, under 23s to give them a little bit of run. But those next five games, whoo, that's tough. Yeah, but I suppose you know, if we're talking about teams that are enjoyable to watch, Amory, Liverpool are at the top of the list. Um, 44 goals so far this season. Um, will they keep flowing? And presumably for them to do so, um, we've, got, we've got to continue the re-emergence of Divock Origi, haven't we? Yes, and I don't think he necessarily gets the credibility that he deserves I know that there's that that thing of him coming on and and scoring the winner but there's so much more to him than that and I think the time for him to shine even more than what he does will be uh, for the Africa Cup of Nations when both uh, Mo Salah and Sadio Mane um, head shores abroad I mean you know, I'm not worried about Liverpool at that time period at all because they've got goal scorers. You've got Diego Jota firing in all cylinders and you've got Origi firing all cylinders. You know that Trent Alexander-Arnold can also score goals. So it's not a case that, yes, of course, you know, Mo Salah, he's definitely hitting the numbers. I think he's in double figures now already this season. I think he's top of the list for the golden boot so far. Alongside with Sadio Mane, you know, two of the, probably the best attackers in the league. But the beauty about Liverpool is, is that they don't have a... a a B team they just have an A an, ad- an additional team to the top team if you like so I think that, you know they've got players there that can definitely step up and Origi is is one of those and if you look at what they've got coming up the big game of course is going to be against Chelsea but then you'll have Salah and um, Sadio Mane for that and then they're off to the African Cup of Nations and I think that's when Origi will get his his chance to really shine as I said Yeah most immediately Seb it's uh, a Villa at Anfield on Saturday uh, the Stevie G derby, I suppose we've got to call it. Um, is this um, a dress rehearsal for the inevitable homecoming of the Messiah? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm going to be missing the pregame for that, I think. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. I, my, I, I'm, I'm fully impressed with Gerard's impact on Villa. Uh, not just... I, I think sometimes you can kind of... Um, get swept away by a few good results but I, I think the substance of those games and the, the calibre of the performance I, I think Villa were largely excellent against Leicester really overpowered Leicester um, and that's interesting isn't it because I don't think overpower is a uh, is is a term used for Villa much I mean they not certainly not since they re- re-emerged in the Premier League since they were promoted but um, if you look at the individual effect that Gerrard has already had on players I'm thinking most likely of, of, of Ollie Watkins. I think his um, the the range of his contribution has changed since Gerard came in. Um, I think John McGinn has uh, had a slightly new lease of life since Gerard's um, become head coach. It, it's um they are very very interesting. Like it feels like over the summer when when they handled the Jack Grealish departure and when they brought in new players. Um, I think a lot of us thought, yeah, they're, they're going to be one of those teams that you want to watch. They're going to be, they're going to have a kind of a range that they didn't the season before. And obviously what happened with Dean Smith happened and it didn't quite go as well as it should have done. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure which side of the fence I fall on with regards to his dismissal. But what I would say is that 
Jared has kind of, in just four games, I know he's lost one, but in four games, he's kind of delivered on that prophecy a little bit. They, they are a, a diverse team. They are a, t- a side now who can pose even the best sides in the division a range of problems. They lost to Man City, but they didn't, you know, they didn't die wondering, did they? Um, they were they were very very impressive. So I I um I think it's slightly when 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 Gerrard goes to face Liverpool, it's a little bit more now than just oh look, Steven Gerrard's back at Anfield and isn't that you know isn't that interesting and should we you know dedicate an hour and a half's worth of coverage to that all that kind of stuff. Um, that will happen anyway. But now they are a footballing proposition too, and he deserves to be seen as a kind of a footballing mind in his own right, regardless of where his future is headed. Yeah, I. I... My memory of um, well, my most recent memory of, of Steve Gerrard is is when he was at um, at Liverpool coaching the under 18s, and um, we got there to see him very early in the morning. He'd been at he'd been at the training ground since half six, working out his sessions. And what struck me then, Amory, was that he was a guy who was duplicating the qualities and attitudes of him as a player into him as a coach and, you know, as we know now, manager. Um, players like that or, or managers with a playing background like that have a certain resonance about them, don't they? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, you look at um, Mikel Arteta, of course, who's currently at Arsenal, and then you have Frank Lampard, who was at, at Chelsea. They seem to bring that mindset of get you know, getting to the training ground really, really early. There was that thing about Eddie Howe, wasn't it, who turned up at Newcastle's training ground at seven o'clock in the morning because the Sky Sports news cameras there were to capture it all, <laughs> which might have been of a shock to one or two players. Anyway, in answer to your question, um, yeah, absolutely. It's still that that work ethic, isn't it? And you can see that St- Stephen Gerrard is somebody who's very much dedicated to what's happening on the ground, around the training grounds, around the club itself, but also delivering on the pitches as well I still believe though that he needs maybe what no definitely one club maybe two clubs before he takes on the mantle that is Liverpool Football Club I still think he needs a couple more clubs before he heads down that road but like Seb I'm really been encouraged to see Aston Villa just blossom over the last few weeks or so and I do and like Seb fall on I don't know what to think about you know Dean Smith's departure but Stephen Gerrard has brought a breath of fresh air and I love watching Ollie Watkins and I feel like he's fallen off a little bit and now to see him coming back as well and Leon Bailey who I love and I'm half Jamaican so I've got to support him so you know it's kind of you know he's got a young like that word you use diverse squad so I'm really excited to see what Villa can deliver over the next few weeks or so let the good times continue Hey if, 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 if you can get Bailey fit and keep him fit that is a very, very decent player. I mean, he's he's always kind of blown hot and cold. Um, did when when he was a Leverkusen, but super talented guy. Um, and you know, if you add that into what Villa seem to already have, one thing, Mike, and it's just it's it's just a, an observation on the kind of the coverage since he since Jared took the Villa job. Like Aston Villa's massive club, like former European Cup winner. Like the idea, this is not Frank Lampard going to manage Derby for a year. Like, it's okay if Steven Gerrard wants to stay at Aston Villa for five years. Like, I, I, I know he's, it, because of his history, Liverpool is, is a perpetual question. I understand that. But 
at the same time, like given the financial resources and the infrastructure at a club like Villa, you do amazing things that Steven Gerrard does not need to go to Liverpool to fulfill whatever managerial ambitions he has. I know that that's something that will come up. I, I'm a realist. I understand. But um, I think it's important to recognize that this is this is a wonderful opportunity for him by itself rather than a, you know, a stepping stone. Yeah, if we're talking about inevitable questions, um, forgive me, Amory. Um, Manchester City home to Wolves in the BT Sport uh, Saturday lunchtime game. They have the fewest um, Premier League goals of the top three, 32. <clears throat> so here comes the question. Um, is that an indication of the impact of not having a traditional number nine? I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to ask it. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you imagine, though, Mike, if City do end up winning the title without a traditional number nine? It would be like Pep Guardiola's held as the, you know, even more of a messiah of coaching than he already is. I mean, look... All right, there's no natural finisher in the team, fine. But they've got so many options to score around the box that, and they've got players who play the right pass and get in the right position and get in the right space when you've got Sterling, I know Foden's slightly injured at the moment, Gerdouin, Mares, Jesus, Torres, etc., etc., etc. I, You know, I'm not worried about City not having a natural finisher in the team because look where they are on the table Right now, they're sitting pretty at the top and they've managed to do that without a number nine. So the fact they've got so many options, I'm not worried about it at all. And yeah, and I think if they do win the title, it will be just hailed as this new thing and maybe other teams will start to replicate that. Maybe. Yeah. Well, quick hack tip to uh, Rich Jolly here. Um, apparently, uh, Harry Kane has the lowest chance conversion rate in the league this season, which might suggest they dodged the bullet. Um Seb, if we're talking about clubs and teams fashioned in the image of their coach or manager, City do fit that bill. Um, Pep, you know, he says, look, I'm not going to train another English club. When he comes out with statements like that, does it suggest that, you know, he's got a finite time left at City? Yeah, but I, I think that's always been the assumption, Mike. I mean, if you, to be honest with you, I never expected him to stay as long as he has done um, because of his style of coaching. I um, see the political environment of Barcelona is, um, you know, you, I don't think many people would survive there for a long period of time. Bayern Munich is a, uh, a club that exists in a, you know, very bright uh, media glare. Um, it is a, you know, it's really the kind of obviously the dominant club in Germany, but a source of continuous discussion. Um, so no surprise that he kind of moved there. I think City, you know, his. I've always thought that I, I, I think what keeps him there at the moment is probably the European Cup because he hasn't done it, and um, it's the asterisk against his legacy. Um, uh, certainly in England, but also this is a holdover from the many questions that were asked at Bayern Munich about why he couldn't win it there with a very talented group of players. Um, but then once he's done that, I, I, what else really is there left to do? He his, um, He's kind of, if you go through the checklist, won the Premier League many times, won a lot of League Cups, um, reached a European Cup final, but also um, changed the native style, brought through some young players. I'm not just thinking of Phil Foden because you know, there's a couple of other young kids coming through there who are very, very good players. Um, he's done his little tweaks, like, a, you know, he's converted Zinchenko into a fullback from a midfield player and back again. Like, he, he's, all the pep-isms um, have taken place. So 
I would have thought sort of one or two years at most is left there because I, I think he would... I don't know where he goes. I mean, prior prior to the pandemic, I think you could make the argument for, for saying, right, well, he, he might head to Italy possibly, but, um, you know, really the Premier League is still barring a couple of sort of... Um, sort of uh, oil wealthy clubs uh, is really the only place with um, any money at the moment still um, so I'm not sure where he would go unless it's to spend another year playing chess with Gary Kasparov I, I'm not sure but um, it's it's about with, with Pep I've always thought about he's led by by challenges so if you can identify something that he wants to do uh, then that changes the issue but the moment the the footballing landscape is quite narrow for someone like that. And there's, it's not a coincidence that all of a sudden, pretty much every uh, every um, sort of high priest of the game has gathered in England. I mean, it's great to see it, but it's also because the money's here. Um, if, you, if he's determined never to coach another English team, I'm not sure I see him going to Paris Saint-Germain. I'm not sure what the challenge is there, really. Um, Juventus are, um, you know, not as financially well off i mean Juventus are trying to save money at the moment and trying to um trim their wage bills so uh, adding pep guardiola as a head coach doesn't really help that so i'm not sure where he goes um but no i, I just i don't see him as someone that can settle i don't he's not he's not going to do 10 years in england let's put it that way mm. he's still the sort of guy that you know occasionally leaves you stroking your chin thinking what happened there why did that happen and you know it's a case in point this week with I thought it was a pretty strange team to put out for a dead rubber in the Champions League and hey presto um, instead of being rested um, Walker got sent off and misses the resumption of the Champions League but one characteristic remains true um, Amory he puts pressure on players and he's now doing that on Jack Grealish basically saying, look, I'm not going to wait until next season. You've got to justify your move now. Is he? It's called tough love, Mike. I think that's what it is. It's tough love. Um, and I found really interesting what Jack Grealish said in, in the newspaper interview that he found it more difficult to settle in with the new manager and his new teammates. And, uh, you know, you've had players before who have come to Manchester City who have needed time to settle. Um, and you think of somebody like, for example, Raheem Sterling. Didn't exactly, you know, get off to the best start with Manchester City, but he's blossomed. I, I know now that he's not necessarily a starter, but he did blossom after a little bit of time with Pep's guidance. And I think that's what Jack Grealish also needs. Because if you think about it, he's, you know, he's gone from being the club captain at Villa to walking into a change room and seeing these world-class players all around him. He's having to adapt to new systems. And remember, he was, at, as we all know, he was at Villa for a really, really long time. So all that thinking and education of how to be a player has been entrenched for years. And now he's come to uh, to a, a team, a wealthy team, that, you know, tactics and, and marking and all this kind of thing. And he's having to re-educate himself. So, of course, he's going to need a little bit of time. But there's also that added pressure of being a hundred million pound player. And that's always going to be thrown at him. So that tough love, putting that challenge to his player. That's what Pep Guardiola does. He puts that out to his players and, you know, most of the time they deliver on that. But he, I do feel that Jack needs just a little bit of time. And I think behind the scenes, Pep Guardiola will give that. I think we all just need to give him that time and space because we all know he's a great, great player. Um, and he's just having to, as I said, re-educate himself with a different style of playing and a different position on the pitch as well. Yeah. You mentioned, Seb, 
you know the phenomenon of of master coaches migrating into the Premier League. Obviously, we've got Ralph Ranick now at Manchester United there at Norwich on Saturday. Um, is his influence being quickly felt? Um, you know, I, I was quite interested to to hear uh, Scott McTominay saying, you know, there's a lot of steel behind the closed doors. He's very firm, very driven. Uh, knows what he wants in his players. Very, very clear thinker. Yeah, he's also he's not the easiest man as well. Like I, all the the um, the reference to his effect and influence on European football, modern German football. He is the architect of modern German football. You know, um, that's very, very fair. But I think if you if we read between the lines, um, he's a very demanding man. Um, he's a workaholic, and he doesn't always respond that well to not just not getting his own way, but um, uh, underachievement. Um, so there are stories about sort of, uh, you know, what would happen at Leipzig when, you know, performances weren't great, ditto at Hoffenheim. Like, it's not, he's not an easy person to work for. Um, so for someone like, uh, well, it depends. I mean, it, it depends on Scott McTominay's personality. That goes for every other Manchester United player. If you like um, to be exposed to a perfectionist, if you like to be exposed to someone that... He's one of those guys that sort of, um, he, instead of sort of, he, he's not someone that's going to rule by democracy. There's not going to be a kind of an exchange of views on the training ground about what the best way to play is. It's this is how we're going to play and this is how you're going to do it. And this is how we're going to train. Um, and so I suppose if, if, that's, if that's your ideal of steel, absolutely. But then I happen to think that's exactly what Manchester United need. Like it, there's been too little kind of, there's been too much uh, accommodation um, not just of players, but of issues. There's been, um, I feel like at every club, there's a relationship between the executives and the technical staff. Um, and they obviously have different objectives. Football is a business, football clubs are businesses. Um, but at Manchester United, it's felt too often as if, um, certainly over the, it's in the period since um, Alex Ferguson departed, um, as if uh, the, uh, the executive side, the ratio was off there as if it was dictated um, what the uh, the playing staff should be by someone other than uh, those in charge of the technical side of the club. And that won't be the case with Rannick. Um And that's a very, very important difference. And it's, um, I, I find it fascinating because I, if you think about the clubs that Rannick has managed before or um, uh, been given control of, he once referred to Hoffenheim as a blank sheet of paper, uh, which is a very interesting comment because it implied a couple of things. Firstly, there was no history, clearly, because it was, a village of 3,000 people. Uh, but also, um, there was no pushback from anybody else in the environment. It was a, do what you want, create what you want here, um, and let's see how far we go. And uh, on a much bigger scale, same thing happened at Leipzig. At Manchester United, you have tradition, you have enormous amounts of history, you have massive personalities and egos in every a, a, every room in the club. Every corridor you go in, you're going to pass someone with a, with an agenda and an ego and a, a strong personality. So on the one hand, um, Ranier comes in with a kind of, you know, um, strong backbone and, um, you know, uh, absolute belief and conviction in, in his way of doing things. On the other, you have a club which is not pliable in the same way as his other projects by any stretch of the imagination so um yes i think he brings a lot of steel but i i'm not sure what the res result of that is going to be because there's going to be you'd imagine a few clashes here and there at some point over the next six months in that context it's quite interesting or intriguing anyway that um 
there his that his own mentor Helmut Gross has come out of retirement at the age of seventy five to advise him at Old Trafford. Um, you know he's introduced a sports psychologist. Um, with all that going on, um, you know we've only got a couple of matches to base this on Anne Marie. But who are the and those two matches by the way he's used twenty seven players. Who are the winners and losers are out of it so far? I would I would say that Fred has probably um, increased his standing and uh, Diogo Dallo, um, which you know, obviously means that Aaron Van Bissaka's um, struggling. Yeah, and with uh, Aaron Bissaka, I think the problem is is that Ralph Rangnick likes his fullbacks to press high. There's absolutely no problems with Van Bissaka when he tackles one on one. He's he's fine. He does a job, but but being up the pitch is not his strength. So, yes, he's going to have a bit of competition on his hands for his place, I'd say, on that front. Winners, Mason Greenwood definitely is a winner because he's, he's a presser, he's creative, he's dangerous around the box. I'd also say, I reckon um, Donny van der Beek as well, another player who likes to press. I think he's potentially a winner. The person I feel kind of a little bit sorry for is Cavani. What's going on with him? He's only made the starting 11 twice. I know part of that, it was outside of Ralph Rangnick's control, but you have to think that, you know, he was encouraged to stay on at Manchester United by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, signed on for another year and, and, you know, with injury and being out of form, he's barely played this season. So you've got to wonder what's going to happen with him, particularly with Ronaldo being back as well. Um, Martial is another one, I think he's got a question mark. He's just been inconsistent. He's either been on the bench or he's been injured. When he is on the pitch, he's missing chances. There's been a lot of question marks. I can't think of a player less suited yeah, to play for Rafa I agree. Than, than Martial. He's so ponderous, so talented, but um, it's amazing how often, Namri, you, you see him receive the ball when he's just standing still. Like, And the football that the football that Rannick will want to implement is based on, um, in terms of progression from back to front, is going to be based on uh, moving the ball vertically, um, short to medium distances, and accurately, and playing obviously with a lot of pace, and that's before any of the kind of the pressing and the high intensity stuff without the ball. Um, and if you can't do that, I think this is one of the, the areas in which Wan Bissaka will struggle. Like I, I think he's a very very fine defensive player, but he is not somebody that moves the ball quickly um, and vertically. He's someone that likes to come back inside. He's he's, he's someone that prefers an easy pass. Um, and that's not going to suit what comes next. And like, I agree completely about Van der Beek. But Martial is like Martial's a riddle to me. I, I've watched him play dozens and dozens of times, and I still have no idea what he's going to become. Like, it's it's a really strange one because I, I, I you see him sometimes you think God this guy's a world beater, and then other times he just looks like not that he couldn't possibly care less, but that he's almost unaware of how good he could be with a few tweaks to his game. I don't know if that's fair or not, and I don't know if Man United fans would agree with me. That's just a that's just a kind of um, an aside. I, he's a strange player. Mm. Instant judgments are always formed in football, aren't they, Anne-Marie? Um, I just want to talk about almost the knee-jerk nature of modern football and put that into the perspective of a club that you know well, Arsenal. Everything was fine. Then they lose... Two leads, they suffer three defeats in four games, and Mikel Arteta is suddenly, once again, an inadequate manager who must be sacked. <laughs> really? Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Inconsistency. 
That's the issue with Arsenal. And that's what frustrates some, not all, some Arsenal fans, I think. It's the inconsistency of it all. The, you know, Arsenal do so well for a, a few games and then they, it, they fall back into that familiar pattern. And it, it, it's that it's like a waveform, if you like, with Arsenal. I will say that I don't believe Pepe has ever lived up to his £75 million price tag. I think there were a lot of high hopes for Thomas Partey. He's been consist- inconsistent and injury as well. and But he can produce more. I think the defence has got better under Mikel Arteta, marginally better. But there's still question marks about what he's going to do about the midfield midfield creativity and the attacking threat. And what Arsenal fans want, which all teams want in the Premier League and the Championship and further down, is that they want teams to challenge. And Arsenal can do that sometimes. When they were playing against Liverpool for the first 30 minutes, they were challenging and then something switches and then the mentality just completely drops off. And that's something that Mikel Arteta needs to sort out. And we're not seeing the results of, of that, of, of working on the mindsets of some of the more senior players, shall we say, in inverted commas. Orba being out of form again. I know he's still, you know, he's had uh, malaria and, and COVID and all kinds of stuff, but he is badly out of form. And when you're missing sitters and you're the captain and you're the top scorer for the club. There's question marks about that. There's question marks going on about Lacazette as well. There's a lot of questions that are not getting answered. And I think that's just bubbling the frustration with some, not all, Arsenal fans. But let's not have this thing of having knee-jerk reactions. Can we just get through this season, please? That's all I ask. You know, I think the problem with Arsenal is... There's lots of problems, Seb. There's lots of problems. Well, there are lots of problems. I was going to go with a big theme, Emery. Like, Arsenal are overcovered. We treat, and we're guilty of this, like, we treat Arsenal as if they are still a title contender. And we treat them in the same way that we would one of those clubs. So we, we, we bounce from fixture to fixture in the same way that we would with Liverpool, Manchester City. Like, every misstep is a crisis. And the reality is, Arsenal are just... Arsenal are fine. They're a Europa League team... Um, they are uh, currently um, a team that if they were to finish 6th or 7th fans wouldn't like it but that's an okay season it's not a disaster that would be kind of par for what their level of ability is and what you know the standard of the club's infrastructure is but as a result it's like it's like it's like trying to lose an old habit isn't it because we're still we're still acting as if they you know they've still got Patriot in midfield Thierry Henry up front and like every defeat is a catastrophe whereas like teams of this standing I'm thinking, you know, teams that will fall into the kind of the, the Tottenham, Everton bracket, probably Leicester City a little bit too now that they're, they're in that kind of region. Like they are going to have peaks and troughs through a season and they're not going to be disasters. They're not going to be, they're not heading for ultimate triumph. It's just the life of a Vanessa ran, I'm afraid. Um, and I feel like, you know, I, I don't think I have a particularly strong opinion on Mikel Arteta one way or the other. He's fine at the moment. He's He's doing okay in some areas, less than okay in others. But you kind of, and this this always happens, like we just can't lose the habit. Arsenal, they're massive. They should be doing this and this and this. And they're, they're just not equipped to it. They're just not good enough to to be treated in that way at the moment. I agree. And I, th- I think, you know, the, the sensible Arsenal fans will realise that top four was never on the table in the first place. No, Anybody no, thinking no. that, and I'm sorry to say this, you're deluded. If you were thinking that, that Arsenal were going to be, I mean, of course, yeah. Everybody wants to, you know, finish in a good place in the in the Premier League. But with Arsenal, for me, I was looking at 
top six and that was even that's even a stretch so it's you know top four was never on the table for them it's a long-term project I'm not worried about Mikel Arteta Mike at the moment to be honest with you I like him and and I like what he's trying to do and it is this process of you know, Arsenal is, is going to have to go through this this very hard process of and the words that Seb used, the peaks and troughs. But yes, he's absolutely right. We, at times, still treat Arsenal at the level of Liverpool, Manchester City and Chelsea. And those three teams are far and above away from everybody else. And it's time to stop thinking of, it, thinking of Arsenal in that way. Yeah, I probably shouldn't say this, but that's not stopped me in the past. You know, you look around the press box and half of them support Arsenal and the other half support West Ham. So, you know... <laughs> we, or Spurs. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the problem. I mean, it's, it's not like... I mean, I, we, we, we're not pointing the finger at any, you know, any particular... No, 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 no. no. That, was a, that was a joke, um, folks. A joke. On this podcast. Um, <laughs> internet, internet doesn't no, like jokes. No, it don't. <laughs> internet has no sense of humour yeah. at all. No, but it, it's fair though, isn't it? It's like it's a culture. Like in the same way, I always think of Nicolas Pepe. Nicolas Pepe, like he's he's a, he's an okay player. What he's not is a seventy million pound player, and he's kind of a victim of um, a big fee that was paid by a club that didn't really um, value his talent appropriately, um, and as a result, he gets covered like a seventy million pound player. Like Arsenal, Arsenal are kind of Nicola Pepe. They're, they're covered like they're a £70 million club or a £70 million player. Whereas in reality, it's just a, you know, a good season for them is uh, finishing sixth, finishing above Spurs, um, you know, that kind of stuff, maybe being competitive in a cup. That's the nature of things at the moment. They're not going to compete with Liverpool, Manchester City or Chelsea just or Man United just because like a lot of other clubs, you can't. It's just the reality of the modern game at the moment. Yeah, in, in- Let's look at the polar opposite to to, to this, um, Amory. You know, one late win, and everything is rosy at Everton. Doesn't the reality that the problems have just been postponed to a degree? Potentially, yeah. I mean, they needed that win. Otherwise, I think things were going to turn real quick. And that loss to to Liverpool, I when Everton got scored against Liverpool, I thought, right, this is it now. They they're back in this, and then just Liverpool just pulled away. And and before then, Everton were winless in eight. So yeah, they needed that Arsenal win for sure. But the problems are not just on the pitch; it's what's going on off the pitch as well. What's going on in the boardroom? And the fact of the matter is, they've spent over two hundred fifty million pounds on transfers, and they're not getting. Well, they haven't been getting a good return on, on the investments. You know, I looked at where they finished, 7th, 8th, twice, 10th and 12th. And Rafa Benitez, you know, he's a top, top, top manager and him intimating that he might need funds in January. But I don't know if that's going to be the case because Everton don't have an open checkbook anymore because of certain rules and regulations. And he just might have to work with what he has. And I'm not sure that's going to go down with all the Toffee fans, to be honest. Um, they desperately need Yerry Mina fit. They really, really do. They really need Dominic Calvin-Lewin back. Richarlson needs to score more goals. Um, yeah, it's it's the result against Arsenal. I don't want to say papered over the cracks. I say gave Toffee fans a brief respite. But there are more challenges to come. Is the same? Is there the same mindset, Seb, at Newcastle uh, as at Everton? In other words, no straw is uh, too small at which to uh, to grab. Yeah, yeah, because I mean the situation is very different. Everton need to uh, sorry, Newcastle need to survive, um, and so uh, 
despite their wealth and uh, the goings on of this season um, and some of the bigger questions attached to that, at the moment, every win is very, very important. Um, and I, I kind of object to, this, it, it, this isn't just about Newcastle, but there's this modern habit of sneering at any, every, any fan base enjoying anything. Like it's kind of like the, the fun police come out and be like, no, 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 <laughs> you're not allowed to celebrate that. And I think, oh, if you're a fan, you celebrate what you want. Um, you know, I certainly will. So, and I won't hear of somebody else trying to dictate what matters to me as a football supporter. Um, and yeah, so it, it's context, isn't it? And um, it feels like, I, I get it because it feels like at the moment, if they could survive, then that's the path to their brighter tomorrow, or at least their brighter tomorrow quicker. Um, so yeah, fair enough. And um, I, also I, I think, um, I think uh, for a lot of clubs, for clubs that don't regularly compete for trophies, football's made up of moments, isn't it? And I was in neutral watching that Everton-Arsenal game, sort of a neutral. And, you know, well, it was a lovely moment, though. Demari Gray's goal, jumping into the crowd. Like, oh, that, that, oh, oh, that will always melt my heart, seeing a goal scorer in the 90th minute jump into, the, into his own supporters. It's fantastic. You know, of course, um, you know, he'll be booked for that, and that's kind of joyless. But it's a, for a club that have suffered... Um, a pretty disappointing season who've just been humiliated in their derby on their own pitch what a tonic um, and the bigger questions about Brands isn't the problem at, at Everton we, we all know this like it, it's a kind of someone had to go I mean look at the British government this week someone has to go but it's not the person responsible um, <laughs> and it's the same principle Brands was never in my mind given the opportunity to do the job he was hired for very common situation when you get sporting directors coming in um, with big reputations, but you also they're working under owners who have egos and their own ambitions and um, their own vision for what a club should be, or who don't really necessarily understand the person that they've hired. Um, but it looks good, doesn't it? Um, and also married with the idea that Rafa Benitez wants to be king of his own castle, always has done. That's fine. He's um, he's got the uh, the trophies to to show that um, that's fair enough. Um, but fair enough, like, you, you have you have. Um, have a little bit of momentum, you have an enjoyable moment of football during a period which hasn't been particularly enjoyable, celebrate it because that's the kind of thing that changes the atmosphere around a club and I've always felt like Everton's one of those places where it gets sour really quickly at Goodson Park um, it I, I don't want to say it gets moany um, but that crowd's quite as wonderful, wonderfully supportive as the crowd can be um, and as much of an asset as it can be it can be a hindrance um, and I remember sort of watching Everton during the Roberto Martinez uh, period. That was, you know, pretty hostile at times and pretty inhibiting if you're a player, I'd have thought. And it could have been, you know, anything that stops that happening now is a good thing. Let's put it that way. Yeah. With Newcastle, um, you know, I suppose the obvious question is, can Callum Wilson keep him up on his own? Um, who else can Eddie Howe build that team around from in the existing resources, Amory? Um, well, you know, we know that Joe Willett can score goals. Isaac Hayden as well, Jamal Lascelles, Jacob Murphy. I mean, with Newcastle, there's been a, you've seen already that Eddie Howe's had some impact on the team. They've lost just one of four matches since he's come on board. They're definitely attacking more. Um, I was looking at some of their stats and they had, uh, for midweek 15 or match week 15, they had 19 shots last weekend. They were creating more opportunities as well. And over the last five games, they've had 33 shots and seven on target. So if Newcastle United are going to get themselves out of trouble this season, it will be 
trying to still pushing forward more creating chances and scoring those goals and not just relying on on Callum Wilson because he's we know he's prone to injuries so they need to keep it tight keep moving more on the front foot which is what Eddie Howe likes to do but also encourage the likes of Joe Willock and Isaac Hayden and Jamal LaSalle and various others to, to score goals Theoretically, at least, there's a much more revealing test awaiting at Leicester on Sunday, Seb. Um, I say theoretically, you know, the recurring fallibility, now they've dropped into the Europa uh, Conference League. Um, This is more than the blip, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, It's also, there are some very troubling patterns that the inability to defend set pieces is... um, is verging on extraordinary. They just will not learn any lessons. I don't, like, um, presumably there would be a heavy coaching focus towards solving this problem, and yet it never seems to get better, full of mental mistakes at the back. Um, the midfield's a mess. Uh, they're too vulnerable to uh, counterattacks off their own counterattacks, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, and um, Brendan Rogers all of a sudden is looking like a coach who can't cure some of these issues. Uh, it's not a good place to be. And it also makes people think of um, the last time in English football that Brendan Rodgers suffered a downturn and couldn't solve it. Um, because I think you, you kind of got two classifications of, of, of managers. You've got those that can deal with the peaks and troughs and arrest the decline and do whatever's needed to um, to change the trajectory, you know, shift the shape, drop a few players, bring a few in, sign a couple, whatever it may be. And then you've got those who who operate with momentum. Let's call it the, the Alan Pardew curve, perhaps, um, where you, you have an initial impact and when the momentum runs out, you're kind of done. And I don't think Brendan Rodgers necessarily belongs in that category. He's not one of the kind of the carousel head coaches that just exists in the Premier League. I, I understand that. But you have to at some point show that you can deal with this because you didn't at Liverpool. Um, and he did amazing things at Celtic, but it doesn't count for as much with as many people in England. Um, and we can argue about whether that's right or wrong. That's just the reality of it. People don't um, pay as much attention to it. So he needs to fix this. And I don't know how he does because he, it's Fafana was a big loss at centre-half. I accept that. But um, it shouldn't be as bad as it is just because of that. Um, and I find the kind of the underuse of uh, Kelechi and Nacho a bit weird, I'll be honest. Um, I think he was very, very good last season, and I know he's had a few injury difficulties, but it's odd. Um, Patsandaka is a an excellent player in waiting, but hasn't quite got there yet. Um, Samari's, uh, I don't know what he is yet in English football. I know, I know what he was in French football. Don't know what he's going to be here. And there's all these sort of promising parts. Harvey Barnes has come back from injury and he's got a lovely goal at Villa Park last weekend, but it's not quite convincing. And I don't know why, and I don't think Brendan Rodgers knows why either. Um, and that's quite troubling, I think. Mm, I suppose it, you know the, the 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 opposite of that is is West Ham in the way they've actually profited from Europa League football. Um, it seems to me to have given uh, them a, you know, given their self esteem a little bit of a polish, being able to qualify in that way. Um, the realities, though, um, are they vulnerable? Because of their smaller squad, you know they're missing uh, Ogbonna and Zuma with with long term injuries, and let's face it, Amory, they would have been pretty useful at Burnley at the weekend, wouldn't they? 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. Can you imagine you're a team that's beaten Chelsea, Liverpool, the two Manchester clubs, Tottenham and Leicester across all competitions this season. You're peaking, the momentum's flowing and then boom, here come the injuries to your back line. And it's a tough one. I mean, Angelo Ogbonna, yes, we know he's going to be, well, we know he's going to be for us this season. I think Zuma's going to be slightly shorter from what I understand, but he's still a big loss. So again, it's the thing of David Moyes looking at other players to step up. And what I like, what I've really liked, and we've talked about this before on, on this podcast, Mike, is the, the team dynamic over the last few months, the last seasons or so. They really are a team that are one and they support each other and push each other. So I think you're going to be looking at now, I think Issa Diop is the only recognised centre-back that is available right now. It's Dawson we know, injured too, Amory. Well, I was going to say, I think... Craig Dawson's been in and out of the team, yeah. so chance for him to to really step up now. We know Arthur Masuaku can score goals <laughs> after that World League against Chelsea, and then you know Vladimir Sufal as well. They're the remaining fullbacks, so the three of them, I think, Diop, Masuaku, Sufal, they can really play big parts now, subject to injury, of course. Craig Dawson question mark, but the eighteen-year-old centre back as well. What an opportunity for him if he gets to play more Jamal Baptiste. So. Drop he has Declan Rice in there, maybe, possibly. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you worry about Declan Rice because he's such a fantastic player and runs so much. But you, it's like Calvin Phillips, isn't it? The minute if he goes, I think they're, in, they're going to be in more trouble. So, yes, injuries makes them more vulnerable. But I think they're ready against Burnley. They know what Burnley's all about. And going up to Turf Moor, I think West Ham are actually going to relish it. I think they're really looking forward to playing against them. I think it's going to be a proper encounter between those two teams this weekend. Just to bring things to a close, Seb, I just want to talk about the duty of care to players and managers and the ramifications of the COVID outbreak at Spurs and also those pretty farcial um, protests by Wren at the postponement of that game. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, uh, I think Wren were angling for a, um, a walkover. Um, I understand it. They've got, they've got fixtures to play too and um, they were inconvenienced. I thought that... that Statements were a little bit off in tone, to be fair. Um, I, I, I can't speak for the kind of the, the medical um, repercussions or kind of Spurs handling of the situation, but I thought Antonio Conte um, uh, came out looking very good. I thought he was very statesmanlike and very responsible in his responses and his conversation in the media. Uh, as a Spurs fan, I was very proud of the way he handled it um, and his kind of, uh, emphasis on the importance of family and safety and health and, and those kind of things. He was absolutely right in everything he said. Um, and also the way in which he said it, because it felt as if at times, um, football was becoming too important in that conversation. Oh, you got a football match to play. So what? Cancel it, you know, play it some other time. Like I understand it's a logistical issue, but you know, um, it, safety and health obviously comes first and, uh, Conte got that. And I think a lot of Spurs fans would say the same thing as I have. Yeah, there was an eerie feel of history repeating itself this week. Uh, pandemic football was back in certain areas in Europe. The renewed emptiness of closed doors competition reminded us once again of what we take for granted. Of course, you know, as Seb alluded to there, there is a human dimension to this debate. Football doesn't exist outside society. It's played and coached and managed by human beings. I, did, I too thought that Conte summarised the dilemma perfectly. As he said, today I'll go home and see my wife and daughter. Why do I have to risk infecting them? 
that sums it up for me. If football has to recalibrate again, so be it. Do you agree? I suspect quite a few of you might not. But in the meantime, thanks to Anne-Marie and Seb for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.